0: Hello, I'm here today talking to Mark Carrigan, who is a digital fellow at, so- at the Sociological Review, and he also runs the sociologicalimagination.org uh, uh, website, which is a very popular uh, sociology uh, blog. So, hi Mark. Hi Chris. Um, thanks for coming to talk to me. Um, it's uh, it's nice to see you again. Um, and um, I've, I was really interested to kind of get you onto the podcast um, because as, as the, the theme of this series is, is digital sociology, and um, I see you as someone who's kind of who's put a lot of work in over the last kind of few years or so uh, into uh, I think maybe uh, est- uh, establishing digital sociology really uh, and kind of um, and um, talking about and writing about what. What, what it's kind of possible to do um, in digital sociology. So, I mean, w- would, you, uh, would you define yourself as a digital sociologist or as something else more broader or...?
1: Uh, I would, but mainly because I like the fact that no one understands what it means. <laughs> and so the appeal of defining myself as a digital sociologist
0: is as much rhetorical yeah. as anything else. Um, do, you, do you have a way of, that you would understand it? Uh, I or do. how you would explain it?
1: I, I'd always thought of digital sociology as a project of reassembling sociology. Uh, a reassemb- an assembly device as Not once called it. A way of reorientating sociology, gathering its constituent parts, and trying to facilitate and encourage new kinds of conversation, new approaches to a changing social reality that the sociologists themselves are embedded within.
0: So that's in terms of doing, kind of doing in- theoretical and empirical work and also engaging people outside of the academy.
1: Uh, Yeah, so I mean, I have my own particular theoretical stance on some of the issues that digital sociologists tend to address, and I've done limited empirical work uh, on my study on the asexual community Mm -hmm. online, and the work I'm doing at the moment on digital distraction. But for the most part, my interest in digital sociology has been, at risk of sounding enormously pretentious, about institution building. Mm -hmm. I think it's a practical project, I think it's a way of creating platforms through which we can move beyond some of the limitations of established sociological orthodoxy while still retaining a sense of the value and the continued relevance of the resources of the sociological tradition and mediating between old and new in that sense. My concern is that the institutions of sociology, particularly in the UK, are as they currently stand ill-equipped to deal with the challenge of the digital. And we are at risk of being superseded by newer forms of digitally orientated inquiry like computational social science and data science. And while wanting to avoid having a war of the two cultures and trying to run through some slightly tired old mm. dichotomies, I nonetheless think that sociologists need to be confident about what they can bring to the study of the digital and the resources of sociology address some issues that are continuing to emerge and will continue to emerge that other more influential approaches to digital society cannot make sense of. And I think digital sociology needs to confront this head on, which is not necessarily something that is a reorientation of the entirety of sociology. As much as, as it were, in the conflicts between disciplines, tensions between disciplines, a new front has opened up and I think sociology has been inattentive to it. And there are lots of strands in classical sociological thought, as well as more recent uh, strands of sociological inquiry have tended to be fragmented, there are different aspects of orientation to the digital all over the place, there are different fragments of intellectual resources that I think are hugely influential to make sense of our contemporary situation, and I'm really interested as a practical project, as an applied project, can we build platforms, digital platforms, face-to-face platforms, publishing platforms, that help us draw these disparate resources together? help join up these conversations in order to
0: have a more outward looking discipline that meets these challenges. Um, what do you think has driven some of those, or contributed to, to some of those difficulties <laughs> um, that sociologists have, have perhaps had, um, or that the discipline has had? Um, is it perhaps that sociologists have not had the kind of the, the skills, um, the, the, the kind of the digital or computational or, or whatever else um, skills, um, or is it a kind of um, a lack of um, desire to um, to be engaged with those things?
1: Uh, I think at least in the UK context, the incentives just aren't in place in order mm. to facilitate an outward-looking approach. And I think as long as the contemporary structures of research assessment dominate in the UK, mm. then to actually have a collectively outward looking approach would Mm. be people consistently acting against their immediate interest which is Mm. something that clearly does happen but in the long term that trends towards non-existence um, when those structures are in place. I I think there are lots of issues and one of the key things I've become very interested in is lack of computational skill Mm. and I think this is something that can be framed as an individual problem with an individual solution Mm. but as someone who has been intermittently trying to upskill through Code Academy over the last couple of years. And going through periods of being very committed to what I'm doing, then getting swamped by other stuff and not going back to it, I'm increasingly convinced we need some kind of collective solution to this. Graduate education has to change in some way, mm. and there are projects like the Web Science Institute at Southampton, and the way in which PhD students there are trained in computational thinking and social theory. They learn coding and they learn co- social analysis, and I think you can see the a way out of this ish, out of this deadlock, mm. through schemes like that. But when you look at the conditions which are required for an institute like that, it needs a lot of funding, it needs a lot of institutional buy-in, it needs a lot of commitment, and it needs a more subtle meeting of minds between staff from different disciplines. And I'd worry that without some fundamental change in education for which there is little incentive there is little incentive to drive that forward. I'm not quite sure how this will happen. Mm. And I'm very interested in things like the possibility of computational skill boot camps, for instance, for sociologists even if there are inherent limitations to these and there are important questions we can raise about the whole notion of the boot camp and the work that does there is a real skills gap here mm. and I think interdisciplinarity will not work without upskilling
0: yeah I think that's extremely important and and and, and also um, the point about these institutions that you make because um, I, I've also I think probably not to the extent that you have, but I've also tried to engaged in some of that kind of upskilling aspect um and found similar kind of problems you just get swamped over with these other things um and but i can imagine people go go away to this kind of boot camp but then they come back to their day job if you like and it doesn't it doesn't actually fit in with what they're doing on a day-to-day basis whether that's in terms of their teaching um who they actually have around them to talk to um or in terms of the things that are immediately going to ha- help them in, in in their research, either unless they happen to be actually directly engaged in, in a project like that, um, and usually one that that's got funding. So it is re- it is really difficult, and we you know we increasingly we we're not increasingly we see universities mm-hmm. a lot of the time getting restructured around things. You know, at the university I work at has been restructured so actually um, sc- uh, schools are actually a bit more isolated than they used to be because we've got rid of faculties and people go through these kinds of processes lots of the times, and those kinds of things don't necessarily actually encourage you towards the kind of interdisciplinarity that would be needed, I think, for what you're talking about.
1: Well, those kinds of restructuring processes always make me think of university managers standing in front of a scale model of the university, mm-hmm. moving pieces around, and congratulating themselves for how inevitably they've redesigned the map. Yeah, Oblivious to the fact that actually there are real people within. Yeah. Them, real networks, real relationships, mm. real habits, routines, roots, mm. ways of working that people establish. And actually the upheaval resulting from that is something that's not driving innovation. Yeah. You know, there's a mistake, the mistaken conflation of change from the top down mm. and change per se. And I'm very interested about how innovation can be the possibility of innovation can be squeezed out by mm. a certain kind of managerialism. Because it requires people to sustain relationships with each other. Mm. To find ways of talking, ways of working together. And so I've got very interested about technologies we can design to facilitate Mm. bottom-up forms of, if not harmonization, then the kind of preconditions for collaboration. I don't think people have to be talking the same language to work together. But you need to understand where the other is coming from. And when I've been in spaces outside of sociology, particularly computational social science spaces and data science spaces, I've often found that I don't feel people understand what I'm trying to say when I express substantive intellectual positions on what seems to be a shared object. And I often don't understand what they're saying Hmm. to me. And part of my interest in how interdisciplinarity works across these gaps is through trying to make sense of those kinds of experiences. where we're talking about the same things, but we're talking about them in such radically different ways,
0: collaboration isn't possible. So what kind of technological um, uh, solutions or, or platforms or, uh, might, might aid in that?
1: Uh, well, I'm very interested in games and the kind of ludic possibilities for this. There's a, uh, I spent a year working with uh, John Wiltshire from the Foundry Design Agency to try and design something called the Ontology Game. And we made a prototype of this and then for convoluted reasons the funding mm. fell through for the project. And we did design something akin to a working game. Unfortunately, it wasn't very fun. And the whole idea was this would be a fun game. But effectively, it was a card game designed to elicit people's assumptions about social ontology.
0: Hmm.
1: Not with the aim of harmonising their outlook on this, but at least clarifying when they are referring to shared research objects, what do they mean by that? Hmm. And so something like a tweet can be a very different thing for a practitioner of cultural studies, a sociologist, a philosopher, a computer scientist... An information systems uh, scholar. And to try and both elicit those assumptions, but also have different kinds of exercises, ideally ones that would be fun, and we didn't crack that, mm. that would help people develop a kind of uh, expand their philosophical repertoire to be able to step back more easily from their own assumptions in order to understand other people's assumptions, to inculcate a greater degree of clarity about why they characterise the object in this way. About alternative ways of characterizing the research object and how teams can work together to reach a shared conception of their object. Because I think otherwise, multidisciplinarity is what you have. And when you have multidisciplinary spaces, you have epistemic hierarchies in operation. And even if these seem to work effectively, I think that's often just the function of being in the more influential group. And I think there's antagonism, I think there's uh, unease beneath the surface. And I'm interested about how you can have genuine, genuine interdisciplinary working. Because I think digital systems, digital phenomena, call for this. Mm. Um, because it's not enough to simply talk about the material, or talk about the, the technical. You know, We can't just say socio-technical as if that is an explanation. Mm. We need to have a better understanding of the technical characteristics of these systems, and the different kinds of causal mechanisms through which they interrelate with social mechanisms. And we're just not trained for this. I know I'm certainly not trained for it. And a lot of what's driven my interest is a realisation of my own intellectual limitations. The limitations of the graduate education that I got, which in strictly sociological terms, I'm otherwise very happy with. Mm. And as a discipline, we risk being left behind if we can't enter into these conversations. But the flip side to that pessimism is the feeling that actually, if we can enter into these conversations, we have an awful lot to offer. Absolutely. Um
0: something i wanted to ask about was um uh, something you you've mentioned before i think is that you suggested that digital sociology should be something that's um dialogical rather than dialectical and um partly i was wondering if you could clarify partly what you mean by that but also um what i think is, is related to this and something i feel like I, i've kind of learnt from you from kind of talking to you and from reading um reading your work and and, and your blogs and things like this is The approach that you have to um, um, to engaging online uh, and particularly to blogging is um, I've forgotten exactly how you refer to it, but it's a kind of like um, it's like you're effectively write up your notes of uh, or uh, thoughts of what you're you're reading and have this kind of open uh, relationship to uh, to putting those ideas out there rather than. an approach which some people take, which is to be kind of afraid of putting ideas out there that haven't been published and sort of rubber stamped by, um, by a journal and then therefore kind of legitimized, whether that's through a kind of fear of um, maybe kind of um, putting out ideas that may be discredited or maybe kind of um, haven't been properly thought through or of other people stealing ideas. Um, so, yes, I wonder if you could say something about, about that, that, that kind of dialogue, dialogic approach. Uh,
1: Yeah, and that's a really thought-provoking question because I hadn't linked those two things in my mind. And I mean, the approach that has always come naturally to me is thinking through writing Mm. because I often find that the best way for me to clarify what I think about a particular issue is to write about it and the process of writing about it leaves me with a realization of, oh, that's what I think and that's provisional. Mm. But actually, one of the really powerful things about blogging in that way in the long term is you start to see recurring themes in your thought. You start to see how things develop. Uh, The philosopher Charles Taylor has a concept of iteration which has always stuck with me where the process of articulating (coughs) something within you, it changes you subtly in the process Mm -hmm. and so through repeated attempts to say something, you gain more clarity about what it is you're trying to say, but your relationship to what you're trying to say and yourself changes at the same time Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think in that sense, you know, this kind of open-ended blogging in an important way, it actually constitutes you as a scholarly being. Mm You, you write yourself into being as a scholar with positions and approaches and frameworks and attitudes and preferences and concerns through this kind of blogging. And I think there is uh, a lot of anxiety that surrounds it. Some, but not all of which I think is misplaced. I think people have a affection for what the philosopher Daniel Little calls ideas in motion. People are tolerant of things that are provisional. When it's clear, they are shared in that spirit. Mm. And your question has left me wondering about the kinds of emergent consequences that ensue from different ways of relating to our own writing.
0: Mm.
1: What what concerns me is an absence of what I come to think of as theoretical pluralism, a difficulty people seem to have in both holding a position and believing that position has value and should be argued for, while recognising that other people might have a position with similarly sound reasons. I've had the concern expressed to me that this tends towards relativism, but I don't see why it has to. Uh, I think an inability to recognise that we can be talking about the same object in different ways and the way in which we carve up that object is something that makes sense relative to the particular kinds of questions we want to ask of it, the particular kind of methods we adapt with which we approach it. Um, When I was a philosophy student I was very drawn to neopragmatism. And I think maybe this is a neo-pragmatist approach in a way. I believe there is a a real world out there. I think objects have a finite set of characteristics, but nonetheless, I think what we're doing is abstraction. Abstraction Mm. is a practical activity where we abstract from the complex multitudinous character of the object in order to identify particular characteristics and one abstraction is not intrinsically better than others, the value of an abstraction is relative to the purpose underlying it. And this, from my point of view, makes it easy to see how when we're talking about things like digital systems, different disciplinary backgrounds can be abstracting from those systems for very different reasons. And if we're trying to work together to kind of harmonize or synchronize that abstract, that process of abstraction in order to meet shared purposes. I'm curious about why people can be very militant about the distinctions they draw. Uh the way in which their their particular theoretical school or their discipline or their field tries to carve up a particular object. And I've seen this in lots of spaces, and it often hinges around particular questions like the human or the you know the non-human. And I, I think this is a real obstacle to working together, because if we can bracket these disputes when they are not directly relevant to the work we're trying to do together, we're able to proceed rather than get bogged down in arguments that often can go nowhere. And I do wonder from your question, whether the way in which we relate to our own writing, the way in which we relate to the development of our thought, might inculcate different attitudes Mm -hmm. in relation to this. And if we recognize the provisionality of our own thought, if we recognize the fact that we're constantly engaged in this iterative process of bringing our scholarship and scholarly existence into being, that might make it easier to be okay with theoretical pluralism to recognize we can have different positions to people we work and engage with without trying to bring it back to first principles and try and ensure that we don't go any further until we agree on fundamental questions of ontology and epistemology i find it very easy to have substantive conversations with people i have big theoretical disagreements Mm. with and I wonder now if that is partly down to how I approach my own scholarship. Yeah, and I think
0: that um, the point that you mentioned about the kind of the institutional difficulties or, of or, of um, and pressures in terms of producing for research assessment kind of exercises, uh, research excellent frameworks, these kinds of things, um, <coughs> plays a role in that in that kind of attitude. Um, uh, or the kind of resistant attitude towards that, that that kind of theoretical pluralism you're talking about, and the kind of ongoing nature of kind of blogging uh, uh, as related to that, because um, if you're very used to just the kind of traditional format of, or it's not even traditional necessarily, but the kind of the established um, format of, of, of academic output. so you know, you produce so you produce kind of one per year, one paper per year, also, and maybe a book every uh, every few years, but that is intended to be some kind of definitive statement on whatever issue you're looking at because it has to be um, internationally excellent or or, or, you know world beating or you know kind of world champion kind of uh, piece of work um, in order to be acceptable and to keep your position within, within an institution rather than being a provisional piece part of an ongoing conversation with Um, other scholars within your field or or outside of your field uh, or just interested people Um, it seems to me that pushes people perhaps towards a different way of thinking about any kind of writing.
1: Yeah, I think that's spot on and perhaps that points to the role of position taking and the way in which certain institutional structures incline us towards and scaffold this process of taking positions Mm. you know, uh, fortifying those positions, Mm. defending them and the way in which individual incentives in relation to things like promotion and research assessment coexist with collective ones, people group together mm. and they, you know, fortify those battlements collectively rather than individually. And I think what gets lost there is something Richard Rorty talked about as keeping the conversation going. Mm. And I think Rorty had a very relativistic conception of what keeping the conversation going entailed, mm. where if they're interesting, aesthetically rewarding conversations, that's valuable in its own right and i'd have a much more realist interpretation of that where for me i think we should keep the conversation going in a way that leads us towards more accurate more useful knowledge of the social world but nonetheless mm. i would stress keeping the conversation going and i think social media are you know very powerful technologies that promise the possibility of dialogicity and increasingly i worry that these features of these academic dispositions inculcated by a particular kind of set of institutional structures are leading academics to use social media in a way that perhaps turns away from these possibilities which leaves them unrealized and the idea that social media could be an ameliorative ameliorative, if that's a word (laughs) um it seems more distant to me now Mm -hmm. i could see how the new communicative forms emerging through social media can actually reinforce Existing communicative forms, communicative styles, patterns of relating that we see elsewhere. And I find that quite sad.
0: So do you mean that in the sense that it's becoming uh, just a means of self-promotion or, or of kind of ganging, grouping together around particular uh, standpoints? Is that the kind of thing or something else?
1: Uh, I, I, precisely. Um, and the way in which the institutionalization of social media activity um, can undermine the possibility it becomes this free space. Mm. And so uh, I think Pat Thompson once used the term about feral doctoral pedagogy, the kinds of bottom-up forms of engagement that you see PhD students engaging in using social media. Mm. And I really like that feral metaphor because when people are doing stuff in a way that sits in sits uneasily between being a hobby and being work Mm. there's a kind of freedom latent within that Mm. but then when there are benefits that can be accrued through through that activity that can change your orientation to it and i think particularly when social media activities become institutionalized when in some sense they're funded even in the minimal sense that it's a lot is counted accounted for Mm. as part of someone's formally defined workload that can change the relationship in a way that is perhaps problematic. Mm. And I worry increasingly about the relationship between social media in the UK and the impact agenda. I say as someone who, since I left university, since I left my postdoc at Warwick, I spend half of my time doing workshops Mm. on social media funded by impact Mm. funding streams. But that there's a... A whole notion of the engaged academic emerging which involves a particular concept of how social media can be used and a particular orientation to knowledge and i think i can see increasingly how social media is becoming formalized institutionalized as part of the uk academy and i'm much less enthused in some ways about it mm. than I, I once was uh, i think there are still very positive aspects to this but i worry about the long-term trends
0: also reflecting on on um, what, what we, were, we were just talking about in terms of those those uh, pressures or those particular ways of engaging um, as an as an academic uh, through social media um, and in relation to the uh, the those other institutional pressures we were talking about, you've um, been conducting some work in the last um, year or two, I think, with Philip Bostell, um around ideas around the accelerated academy. Um, so if I understand it right, part of, uh, of what you're getting at there is that some of those things we've just been discussing contribute towards um, a, a, sort of a speeding up of what it means to be an academic um, in terms of the, the, the pressures on people or the expectations uh, placed on oneself or, or, or on others. Um, and that that's having, a tran- having some kind of transformative effects on what academic life and academic work is understood to be. Um, is that is that uh, uh, roughly what how you how you see it? Uh, yeah, so I mean, in a sense, I, I see the project as not
1: similar in a not similar way to the project of digital sociology. Mm. So on one level, um, you know, Philip and I have discussed the notion of acceler- acceler- the accelerated academy as a provocation, as an assembly device, a way of drawing people together from different fields, mm. or sharing an interest in how higher education is changing, mm. and facilitating new forms of conversation to shake things up and allow new kinds of interactions to emerge. And I think in the the two conferences that have happened so far, particularly the one last year, which had a more STS-focused focus, organised by our colleagues at Leiden, um, it's been really provocative. And I think new ideas, new ways of looking at higher education have emerged from it. My own particular substantive interest in it is about time management Mm. and about the everyday mundane challenges that people face, how this shapes, how they see their life, how they see their work, and to link up this psychosocial character of the change in academic labour to things we know about broader changes in the structures of our education. And on that level, I've become very interested in rushing, the phenomenology of rushing, and it's commonplace to hear people talk about how much they're rushing. We have lots of data that supports this. We have lots of data concerning the maladies, pathologies that have emerged in people's lives as a consequence of academia. uh, These changes in academic work. And I'm very interested in how we can think theoretically about what is going on here. And in essence, I see it as a change in the academic role. Following Margaret Archer's work on roles, I'd see that I suggest we all occupy multiple social roles and that roles are as she terms as she puts it they're greedy there's no inherent limitation how much of ourselves we can invest in a particular role and we have to make these minute mundane trade-offs every day about how we choose to spend our time how we expand our energy the way in which we organize our lives at the level of routines at the level of to-do lists at the level of digital scaffolding through software and apps the way in which we relate to other people we relate to other people and I think this is a useful way of thinking through the changes that many people report as parts of their everyday experience. I nonetheless think that to talk about the fast university is in a sense as problematic as to then counterpose that to slow to slow mm-hmm. university. Because I think actually both undermine the role of agency. Um, Philip uses the term megaforce, they present these temporal structures as mega forces that people just adapt to or resist but actually temporality is much more subtle than that and it's mediated and it unfolds and is transmitted mm. through these tiny little decisions that we we make um in everyday life and they fit together into structures that reinforce or avoid some of this uh some of these broader pressures um and that bit of the work is at a very early stage um, But we've written one paper which we're in the process of rewriting and hope to do some more. But that, in terms of my substantive interest in acceleration, is where it lies. That I want to understand academic agency. And I think the role of agency in mediating these temporal pressures Mm. is really interesting. And this is the first thing I've done that really draws on my PhD work in an applied way. Mm. The model of reflexivity and personal change that I developed in my PhD and I'd like to apply that to a particular case study of academic life. And it's also an engagement with the acceleration theory of Harmut Rosa, mm. which has probably been the biggest influence on me theoretically over the last few years, but in a positive and negative way, because I think there are all big problems with it. But I think it's very interesting to explore the themes and ideas and provocations of that work in a particular institutional context. And I think Rosa's work is much more powerful when you
0: apply it in a particular context. Is, and this is something you see as this kind of acceleration, particularly uh, in academia, Um, is it something that you would see as being intensified by um, the digital, in terms of uh, digital um, devices and systems, um, or something that could be kind of tackled by that? Because something I've been thinking about uh, recently is the way that, um, I mean, most, I, I, I don't know if this is true, but like a huge amount of, uh, if, if not most, of uh, applications on, on app stores for, um, uh, for Apple and for Android uh, are kind of productivity apps, right, which are effectively there to, to help people to do more with less time and, and all that kind of thing. And, um, but um, lots of people have suggested that these kinds of things, as with kind of mobile phones, smartphones, um, iPads, etc., all they do, actually do is increase the the, the things that are uh, the expectations that are placed on you, or that you put on yourselves in terms of what you what you can and should achieve. You know, if you can get through that to do this quicker, then that just means you can do more things um, rather than actually uh, lightening the load in any way. But there does seem to be a kind of a potential kind of move towards uh, the, the kind of the delegation of tasks to digital uh, devices and and, and infrastructures um, and. Certainly, so, uh, this is something that Natasha Dow uh, Shull has talked about in terms of um, actually, she's just, there is a move in, in terms of the kind of the self-tracking, quantified self kind of assets of these things. Actually, it's not encouraging people to keep thinking and keep going in a kind of a, a sort of a neoliberal entrepreneurial self kind of way, but to actually delegate these things so you don't have to think about them anymore. So they're kind of getting done, but they're kind of being pushed onto, onto the devices so that you're, you know, you're um, and, and get kind of automated and I wonder what impact that's having on a kind of on the on kind of reflexivity if at all that is the, that is the case in terms of actually in some ways we're perhaps being encouraged not to think about these things um is that beneficial because the kind of the, the boring mundane mundanities that we don't want to think about or actually does that impact on on how we think about ourselves and our roles and our tasks and our positions within within kind of institutions and within our kind of everyday lives?
1: I mean, those are the questions that really fascinate me. And I think there's been a, a prohibition about talk of productivity culture and sociology mm. that over time has started to frustrate me. And I actually find it, I guess, pretty crass. Mm. The idea that if we're talking about productivity, then we're necessarily neoliberalising ourselves as mm. subjects. And I think there's complexity to how people think about these things, which is really challenging to unpack. Uh, the difference between time management workshops imposed from birth and temporal accounting practices mm. which people are forced to engage in, and often you know there is a awareness on both sides of the fact that these numbers are to a large extent being fabricated versus the more subtle forms of uh, activity which phenomenologically extend people 's agency in the sense of facilitate, should, should I try that again, and, and these top-down forms of time management are, you know, problematic in a way that it's not obvious to me that bottom-up ones are, but I think if we just can move away from the way in which productivity is, has been framed, we open up this space of really interesting questions because the issue, as I see it, is not a case of whether it's problematic for someone to seek to optimize their behavior. It's the ends to which they're doing it and the unintended consequences of the systems they're relying on in the process. And as an example, I mean, I got the new Fitbit band uh, two days ago and not for the first time when I've tried these kinds of fitness bands. I'm curious about the, the, legal, you know, the legality of how the data is handled the way in which the, uh, the the account functions, I'm curious about how many people think about this when they sign up to it. How many people are aware of it, as as I am, but continue using it simply because they want the functionality. And you know what? These are really interesting questions about digital social ontology, and the way in which subjectivity, social demands, technical systems all interpenetrate in new ways, mm. often quite. Evolving quite granular issues of mundane everyday activity and there's a whole space of questions here that i think are are, are really fascinating and i think this is something that sociology has an enormous amount to uh, offer and i think contemporary approaches to neoliberalism are in many cases getting in the way of asking these questions
0: so um recently um you've also been doing some work around um public sociology uh, and I think that you you you're working on some 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 of this uh, at the moment um is just wondering uh, what what is it that you you find particularly uh, interesting about about this uh, this issue of public sociology and do you do you see that i imagine you do see that as related to uh, the things we've previously just been discussing around uh, around a kind of academic blogging and and the, the the accelerated academy and and how people kind of fit in their, their everyday lives into this and, and the expectations to be a public sociologist and also the benefits of of, of doing that.
1: Um, well, I, I I'm working with Lambros Fatsis, uh from Southampton on this and we're in the process of finishing off a book proposal mm. at the moment and we just last week finished planning the you know the detailed chapter by chapter approach for the book. And I think what we both share is a concern with how public sociology has tended to be dominated by a literature about public sociology and mm. the practice of public sociology is only tangentially entered into that. And that this reflects some of the issues we were talking about earlier, that the journal system, the incentives for how to produce your work and to be seen to be producing mm. countable work, incentivize people are in this direction. And we're very interested in what public sociology as a... as a body of work, which we're critical of, but nonetheless think has enormous resources, but also the kind of subterranean public sociology, the practice of public sociology that's recognised and particularly the practice that isn't recognised, that it's just things that people do. Mm. And how that is something that social media can highlight because of this tendency towards osmotic knowledge for the people through social media the public-private distinction often blurs and you pick up information about other people's lives that you might not otherwise have and kinds of activism campaigning that are sociologically informed or reflect similar interests to people's public scholarship become more prominent through social media. Mm. And it's in this context that we think public sociology and digital communications, uh, the transformation of scholarly communication is a really interesting meeting, and particularly the way in which social media and academia is coming to be framed, which I find very problematic, as I was suggesting earlier, because of its focus on impact, engagement, the notion the engaged academic gets their research out there, Mm. the research has to be out there in order to make a difference to the world, as opposed to being locked up in here, the implicit ontology of the university that you encounter there. Public sociology is something that I think could allow us to reframe the possibilities of social media for public scholarship, to move it away from this focus on new methods of dissemination, as if actually all that you need for scholarly knowledge to serve a practical purpose is to get it out there. Mm. And instead, think about the constitution of publics, to think about how academics participate in the world and how we can contribute to the formation of new publics and work with people to achieve ends that they've articulated themselves. And we're arguing that the power of social media resides much less in dissemination than it does in new ways of working with people, new ways of assembling people. And we're looking at the production of new kinds of assembly devices Mm -hmm. and trying to do profiles of very exciting initiatives that we feel social media has played a very important part in, but one that has tended not to be recognised as such because it's relegated to the function of communication, but academics participating in new kinds of public initiatives in a way that would not have happened without social media. Uh,
0: could, you, could you give an example of uh, something like
1: that? Uh, yeah, I mean, Lambros's experience with the Free University Brighton, um, mm. which he's, from the outset, has analysed through the lens of public sociology, mm. is a really interesting example of this where the role of social media in facilitating this kind of assembly is subtle. But nonetheless, social media has played a crucial part in this. Mm. And we're interested in reformulating the, the ends of public sociology in terms of these kinds of assembly devices, which is not to underestimate the way in which social media can help sociological knowledge circulate in new ways but the key things are the publics for whom that knowledge might have latent value. Mm. Um, Because I think there is often an assumption of this vast store of unrealized scholarly knowledge and at risk of sounding pessimistic I just don't think that's the that's the case. And I think there's a whole world view inherent in the idea we have to get our research out there um, which I think we need to critique. I've written about this in the past as what I term the amelioration fallacy. The idea that social problems would melt away if only our knowledge went from in here to Mm. out there, as if actually social problems exist because of a lack of scholarly expertise. And I mean, if you really step back from that as well, I think underlying it is an assumption that the world would be a better place if only people listened to us more.
0: Mm.
1: And there's an enormous conceit inherent in that, and it's one that I find a bit ludicrous, but I think this conception of political problems as being resolvable through scholarly means even if when you articulate it that explicitly, people would disown it. I think this implicit model of social change is actually quite common in conversations about public engagement and public sociology. And we think this is perhaps an interesting approach to reframing these debates while still having them as our reference point Mm. in a provocative way that offers a new approach to understanding how academics can participate
0: in the generation of social change. Uh, And I suppose that goes... Back to um, the kind of the earlier um, discussion around the, the the kind of dialog dialogic uh, character of that, no, it not being about uh, broadcast or, or kind of um, transmitting information from here to there, um, but actually about uh, establishing relationships and also having a discussion and realizing where where we're kind of going wrong as academics and uh, and, and what can be learnt on on that side uh, as well and. I think you're right and there is, the, there is this idea, if only this value, valuable, um, uh, insightful knowledge we've got could get out there, then it would be, uh, everything would be okay. But obviously, you know, the, the, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that's not necessarily the case. And I mean, if you think about one of the one of the places where academics do have quite a lot of, at least some academics do have quite a lot of access in terms of getting their ideas um, transmitted to, is, is, is in actually in formal politics. To politicians, you know, in terms of uh, writing kind of white papers and or or, or being cited um, in these kinds of things, um, but it still doesn't necessarily change anything because they still go about doing doing their business in the way that they want to do it. Um, it just how ha- being exposed to that knowledge, even if it is, even if it was this grand um, transformative um, insight, it doesn't necessarily change anything just by putting it into that into that existing context as it stands.
1: But I think demonstrably social media is powerful in getting your mm. foot in the door because the more easily discoverable you are, these connections yeah, yeah, allow, yeah. it allows the formulation of connections, so yeah. these kinds of opportunities emerge. Mm. I mean, I think there are things about the attention economy, the way that, mass, you know, the way that participation makes discovery less likely. Mm. But social media is potentially powerful for this, but what is powerful for in an external facing capacity is building relationships, Mm. building relationships with people outside of uh, your normal field, your normal milieu. And I think if we see social media in terms of transmission, if we see social media in terms of speaking to the public at large, which again, I think explicitly people would deny this, but implicitly I have a lot of conversations in my workshop capacity with academics about how they understand social media. And I worry that the notion of the intellectual lurks in the background, even mm. if people don't expressly adhere to it. The notion of the intellectual of the 20th century public intellectual, you know, these towering figures who would talk to the public at large, almost always white men, and by definition, there could only be a few of them because it was a broadcast model of public intellectualism. Mm. And on the one hand, I find it very exciting, the idea that social media could democratize intellectualism. Mm. The notion of narrow casting, I think, is very exciting here. Mm. The idea that actually even what seem like incredibly niche research topics, there is a public out there, with mm. a la- or a public to be, a latent public with an interest in them. And social media allows us to connect with them in ways that puts that knowledge to work. But I also sometimes think that actually the whole notion of the intellectual is the problem here and it classifies it as a particular kind of figure doing a particular kind of work and there's a whole conceit and a whole history of conceit built into it which makes us approach this in the wrong way as opposed to just seeing it as a new set of tools for making connections with people outside the academy Mm. and what we do with those connections will always exceed the tools themselves Um, but I'm very interested about how academics have implicit conceptions of social media and how these could be studied and how they
0: shape they shape practice that's been absolutely fantastic thanks for talking uh, to me taking the time out today Mark and um, maybe we can catch up again uh, sometime soon and, and see how things are progressing
1: yeah that's brilliant thank you
0: thanks